Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their story so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors, and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Our guest today is Uma Patarkini, class of 2014. Uma is the Global ESG Lead in Investment Strategy Senior Analyst at CenterSquare, where she leads their Environmental, Social, and Governance, or ESG, strategy to incorporate this into investment decision-making and management of listed and direct investments. Their research demonstrates embedding ESG considerations into their investment process provides opportunities to create value, reduce risk, and generate superior investment returns in their real estate holdings. Uma graduated from Penn State with interdisciplinary honors and high distinction, earning a BS in finance with a minor in international business, a BS in accounting, and a master of accountancy in 2014, all from the Penn State Smeal College of Business. She is a CFA charter holder and member of the CFA Institute. She serves as the Sustainability Committee Co-Chair for NAREIM and sits on the Smeal Sustainability Advisory Board. Personally, she's an artist, aspiring impact investor, and fascinated by the ability of innovation and disruptive thinking to create big changes. In our chat today, you'll hear from Uma about crafting an academic schedule to fit your interests in a four-year span, the value of being involved in leadership opportunities as a student, even if it's not directly tied to your major, the origin of Student Council's THON team, finding your why and defining a personal mission statement, deciding on career paths in finance and accounting, leaning into your personal curiosity in the thesis process, using your home college's resources in addition to the honors colleges and the job search, finding unique opportunities by looking past a company's primary product, working as an institutional investor on the buy side, the broad array of options for business majors, all things ESG as it emerges in the investment industry, building a business unit or club from scratch, and why UMA joined Center Square and working in finance strategy. She also talks about jumping at opportunities like sharing your knowledge on TV with little notice, getting involved in your professional community beyond your job, and ESG and sustainability in real estate, the built environment, and even in other industries and disciplines. She wraps up by talking about finding your purpose, the importance of continual lifelong learning, and special shout-outs for the college's staff and how and why you should connect with them, and leaves off with the power of the Penn State Network. So let's jump right into our conversation with Uma following the gong. Uma, thank you so much for joining us here today on Following the Gone. Really looking forward to a great conversation on the finance industry, on real estate, on sustainability. But first, I want to start at the beginning and ask, how did you come to Penn State and the Schreier Honors College to begin with? Hey, Sean. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So where I went to high school, um, Penn State was like grade 13. So, um, and, and I knew that I was going to be really comfortable coming to Penn State as, as a school in general. But what I was really looking for out of my college experience was having kind of that big state school, the football school, that experience. But the reputation of the Honors College, the close-knit community was something that I found to be really special in the context of that really large atmosphere. Um, and so I would say that's that's what kind of brought me brought me to Happy Valley. Great. Um, I think you summed up the Honors College very well. I want to dive into academics first, and then we'll talk about your outside of the classroom experiences. So you have two bachelors. You have a degree in finance and in accounting, and you also got your MAC, which is a Master's of Accounting. Can you talk through what drew you to those disciplines specifically and how you handled presumably doing an IUG or at the very least getting a graduate degree on top of your your two bachelor's degrees? Yeah. So, you know, I came into Penn State 
definitely knowing I wanted to pursue finance. And I took one accounting class and realized that I wasn't going to be really good at finance unless I really understood accounting. Um, and in in the business school, the only way for you to get that dual degree in finance and accounting is actually through the MAC program. And so that's how I kind of added that on. Um, and I was actually, thankfully, able to come into Penn State with a good number of AP credits. And so that took care of most of my gen eds. And so what I was able to focus on during my four years at Penn State was really just kind of knocking out the degree requirements for those degrees. Um, but but it was, it was great because I was able to kind of leverage the fact that I was in the honors college to work with Smeal to say, hey, I can, I can manage to take this on and get it done in four years and do it well. And they had the confidence in me able, being able to do that because I was in the honors college. So I think I was able to kind of finagle my schedule around just enough that I was able to get through that within four years. Um, and it was it was actually not too intensive in the sense that I think I think I maybe had one semester where I had 18 credits but aside from that I was taking like 12 to 15 credits each semester and so it still allowed me to do a lot of things outside of academics during my time at Penn State even though I was able to get through um, you know in, in four years with the master's and two two bachelors as well. There's an opportunity in the Honors College to open a lot of doors. Not everything is possible. I think that's a common misconception. But when you have Schreier Scholar next to your name like you did, as you said, it allowed you to work with the staff at the Smill College of Business to craft your schedule and be able to accomplish really good things on time in four years. So um, something for you as a listener to take into consideration there. Now, you just mentioned that you were involved in other things on campus, and I know you shared your list of these with me in advance, but I'd love to hear about your leadership roles that you held on campus and, most importantly, how those helped prepare you for your career ahead after college. Yeah, so so actually something that I forgot to tell you is to my path to Penn State. Part of that actually was also the number of times I visited Penn State to attend THON. So my high school did a mini THON. And as part of that, I frequently attended THON on campus. And so I knew when I came to Penn State, that was something that I wanted to continue doing. Um, At the time, the Honors College didn't actually have a THON group. There were several, um, you know, special interest organizations that were, that had their foundations within the Honors College, like Atlas and Springfield, but there wasn't an actual like Schreier Honors College thought group. Um, So I started that my freshman year, and that was kind of part of the student council um, and served as thought chair for that group my four years at Penn State. Um, also participated in thought as a committee member on morale, which I think is dancer relations these days. Um, And I I was a finance captain as well. and then aside from Thon, I was part of the homecoming organization, um, served on the executive committee my senior year as the merchandise director. And I would say in terms of just my student leadership experience at Penn State, it taught me a lot of soft skills in terms of, you know, setting targets and managing other people to achieve those targets. And I think most importantly, what that really kind of ingrained in me was this desire and ability to create an impact. And whether that was an impact within an organization, whether that was an impact um, more externally across the community or within Thon, we were paired with, you know, two Thon kids, I mean, two Four Diamonds families. And so like, what was the impact that you were having on the lives of other people? And, and that desire and the ability to create an impact is something that really drives a lot of what I'm doing today and something that actually pulled me into this role that I'm in now versus where I kind of initially thought I was going to be when I started out in my career. Um, So I would say that kind of like desire to create an impact is something that was really instilled in me during my time at Penn State through those leadership roles and something that I kind of carry, carry on today. I think that speaks to the importance of the C in the mission statement, the creating opportunities for leadership and civic engagement. This is the place where you as a scholar can really hone, as you called them, Uma, 
the soft skills, the leadership, the communications, the organization, these other things that you can take into any role, regardless of industry. Now, obviously, you were doing great things on campus. You mentioned Thon, you mentioned Homecoming, obviously Penn State Staples. But I'd be curious, did you have any pre-professional opportunities outside of campus, perhaps any internships or co-ops that helped prepare you for your career? Yeah, you know, so it's interesting that you you point out the fact that all of my kind of extracurriculars on campus were not related to what I do professionally. Um, and I, I do kind of go back and think about, okay, was like if I were part of the Knitley Line Fund or things like that that were much more directly related to what I do today, like how would how would that have changed my overall kind of just like career trajectory or whatever it may be? Um, but but I think in terms of what I was able to actually do on campus, again, it kind of really instilled in me this like sense of purpose, which I don't know I would have necessarily gotten the same level of exposure to that specific aspect of who I am as a person if I were doing something only very career-oriented on campus. Um, but like you mentioned, I was able to obviously do that through kind of internships and that type of stuff. And so I would say from from that perspective, so I interned at Deloitte in New York City the summer before I graduated doing financial advisory. Um, and that was something that I had actually gotten into through through Smeal. Um, I think Smeal does a really fantastic job in terms of just exposing students to different opportunities across different careers. Um, but something that I also found was that typically if you're in accounting, you get exposed to a ton of like big four accounting firms. Like you're going to be a CPA if you're an accountant or if you're in finance, you kind of get pushed into a lot of, you know, exposures to consulting firms or investment banking. Like those are kind of the avenues that you, that you go to if you're in finance. And so kind of that financial advisory through a consulting type of a firm was something that fit more between that balance of accounting and finance for me. Um, but I also realized that that was not, not what I wanted to do. So it was a great experience, got a ton of great, you know, networks, I think out of that process, but ultimately ended up going a slightly different route when I, when I started my job after, after Penn State. Before we go into what that first job was, what did you do for your thesis? So like for my thesis, I had to kind of combine accounting and finance in a way so I could kind of get that honors in interdisciplinary across both both degrees. Um, and so what I did was actually looked at the impact of earnings manipulation and the ability for that to predict stock returns. And so that earnings manipulation was kind of the accounting aspect of my thesis. And it pulled up factors um, from financial statements. And you're looking at receivables and things like that. and then kind of translating that into stock returns and understanding the market dynamics um, from that perspective was kind of the finance aspect. Um, and so I effectively used a, a factor that measures earnings manipulation across a couple different um, relationships that are pulled up out of financial statements, added that to the Fama French three-factor model and found that it actually did increase the predictability of that model in terms of understanding stock returns in the market. So that was my thesis. Um, focus that specifically on kind of the dot-com era in the early 2000s and, and use that to kind of understand how earnings manipulation factors in a lot of these companies that eventually did go bust, you know, how that went into actually predicting their, their market performance. Fascinating stuff, uh, especially with, you know, I immediately thought of Enron and some of those other companies from that era. I'm sure you looked yep. at them. Uh, <laughs> But obviously, if you take any accounting class, that's like case study number one uh, in what not to do. I'd be curious, as kind of a follow up, the takeaways, whether the process or the skills or the, even the direct results, are you still using the, the thesis experience in your current role? Kind of. So a, a lot of, you know, what I did during that thesis was a ton of just kind of data collection, regression models, backtesting, things like that. Um, and, I, and I do use that in some capacity today um, in, in the role that I have. Um, but, but something I think that was, that was really interesting and helpful during the process was really using 
your your own kind of I would say like thought process and your own curiosity to completely drive this this whole project that you're working on, right? So everything else that you did at Penn State was kind of predetermined. It was like, oh, you were going to take this class and in this class you're gonna learn about X, Y, and Z. And this was an opportunity to say, okay, well, here's kind of what I'm really interested in. And like, this is what really gets my gears going. And you were able to find the faculty and, and kind of the resources to help you really pursue that, um, I would say, kind of like very unique thing that you find to be most interesting and not something that others find to be interesting. So I thought, I think that just kind of like that creativity that's required in thinking about things a little bit differently and going after things a little bit differently. That's something I use a lot of today. Now, earlier you mentioned that you had an internship and you decided that that space was not what you wanted to do, which is obviously a great takeaway to learn that. Can you walk us through, you know, on top of writing your thesis, you're also job searching. Can you walk us through that process and tell us how you ended up in your first role out of college? Yeah, so I, I had an offer to return to Deloitte after I graduated. And I, I was kind of just exploring other options out there. And through the career services um, site, for Smeal, I was just, I would, again, like looking at all these different opportunities out there. Um, it was interesting because again, like I mentioned, a lot of kind of the networking that happened through Smeal, if you were in finance, you went to kind of consulting or banking, or if you were in accounting, you went to the big four. Um, and I was looking for something a little bit different and stumbled upon a, an opportunity to work at Exxon. And this opportunity was interesting, mainly because a for my internship, I knew what I didn't want to do. But I had yet to kind of find what it is that I did want to do. And this opportunity at Exxon was this like very, very broad scope within the world of finance. Like you went in and they had this rotational program, and it covered everything from like, their treasury department to investor relations to internal audit and like everything in between. And so I thought that was an interesting opportunity, mainly because it would allow me to kind of dip my toe in the water in a bunch of different aspects of the world of finance and kind of maybe figure out what it is that I did want to do. It was also based in Houston. I'd never lived in Texas. And so figured, you know, why not? Sounds like a fun adventure. Um, and so that's what I kind of ended up pursuing. And, and when I got there, I actually was not even really working for Exxon, this big oil and gas company. I was working for their global technology company, which felt kind of like they had picked up the Silicon Valley tech company and like put it in the middle of Houston, Texas. And it was now creating really cool tech solutions for a large corporation. Um, and so that's kind of what I ended up doing. And it was this great um, exposure to kind of, again, that like creative thought process, right? Because in this world of technology, the whole premise was, okay, what are certain pain points that we see in the business? And how can we actually either solve them or like completely flip them on their heads and turn this into like a really cool opportunity for how we work and live in this kind of global world. And so that kind of creative thought process that I got to really pursue within that organization was really, really cool. I'm curious. So you mentioned the technology. Did you pick up anything about the energy industry overall while you were at, at Exxon? So the the things that I picked up about the energy industry while I was at Exxon were really through these like mandated incoming class, like here's here's like energy 101 and, and things like that. Like everybody that, that got hired into Exxon had to go through certain numbers of trainings during your first couple years. And that's kind of, that was like the extent I would say of my exposure to the oil and gas energy industry, the bulk of what I did was really focused on technology. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you saw the title, you, you read the description. And so we know that you no longer work at ExxonMobil, but you work at a company called Center Square. And you made a pivot from the tech and the energy sector at ExxonMobil to real estate. 
Can you talk about what drew you to transition to the real estate side of finance? Yeah. So um, to kind of just kind of lay lay the ground here, Center Square is a real estate focused investment manager. We have about fifteen billion assets under management that we are managing on behalf of, you know, some of the most well-known institutional investors out there. And so when I say institutional investors, think pension funds, 401ks, things like that. We're not necessarily investing on behalf of individuals. We're investing on behalf of pensions for school teachers and firefighters and police officers and things like that. Um, what, what I learned also during my time at Exxon was that I was an investor at heart. I was at Exxon making some investment decisions from an internal perspective, how you wanted to spend capital to fund these technology projects that were going to change the way that Exxon did business 10, 15 years down the road. Um, but, But really what I was super, super fascinated with was this world of just like the capital markets. Um, I wanted to be an investor and I wanted to be on the buy side. And so the opportunity at Center Square kind of opened up also at, at the time when I was looking to, to move back from Texas back to Pennsylvania or into the Northeast in general to be closer to home and, and all of that good stuff. Um, and, and so it was kind of just like this perfect storm that, that came together and it, and I had this opportunity that opened up at a buy side firm um, and it happened to be in real estate. I wouldn't say that was like specifically what I was seeking out. I was seeking out an investment role in the Northeast. And I found this company that was much smaller. And so Exxon at the time that I was there was like 70,000 people globally. Center Square, when I joined them, was like 70 people across five different offices. Right. And so it was like a very, very dramatic change in in the type of business that I would be working with. And that was super exciting for me because if we go back to, to the initial conversation about me wanting to make an impact when I was at Exxon, I was one of 70,000 people and like, I could literally just not show up for three weeks and I think they would be fine. <laughs> like, um, at center square, I feel like a much bigger part of the equation. Things that I do have a much bigger impact. Um, like I said, we're, we're, we're managing about $15 billion and our investment teams, if our entire company is, you know, at now we're at closer to like a hundred people, um, the investment team that's actually making decisions on how we are allocating that capital and investing that capital is much smaller. Um, I sit on an investment team for our, you know, listed real estate business and I'm one of what, 15 people. Um, managing close to eight, $9 billion of, of capital. And so decisions that I make, things that I do have a much bigger impact on that process. And that was really interesting to me. Um, so that's kind of what, what drew me to Center Square. It was the culture. It was the ability to have an impact within the organization. It was the fact that I wanted to do something on the investment side of things. And it was an opportunity that opened up close to home at the same time that I was looking for, for that change. And so all the stars lined, it just happened to be something within the real estate realm. Gotcha. I think that was really enlightening. I know I just learned a lot as the host here. Um, so for you listening, I hope that you were able to take away something. And Uma, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like in finance, if you have the skills, the finance, the accounting, understanding, you can easily, with some work, of course, translate them from one industry to another. Is that accurate? Yeah. And, and I think in terms of the, the breadth of opportunities that are out there, if you do have a degree in business, very, very broad, right? And so you can be internal within a company. And if you're internal within that company, you can be doing anything, again, from like investor relations and raising capital and treasury management and kind of managing your cash exposure or doing corporate reporting, if that's what you want to do, or internal audit. Like there are so many different aspects. If you're internally, you know, serving a specific company. If you want to be in consulting, 
you know, when you're externally kind of servicing many other companies that can be through a consulting role and that can be through like, you know, a big four accounting role and you're doing audits and assurance work for other companies. Or um, if you're an investment banking, you can do that. If you're, if you want to be more so kind of on like the direct investment side of things, again, so many different opportunities and you can join a fund that's a generalist and you would be able to invest in a whole slew of different industries, or you could join uh, an investment fund like center square that is very much so specialized in the real estate space. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the world of finance in general is so broad um, and it, it as much as it is a positive, it can also just mean that it takes a little while for you to really figure out where you fit in, which is fine, right? Like I, today, if you would have asked me maybe like five years ago, like, oh, what do you think you'll be doing in five years? Like, this is never in a million years what I would have been like, yeah, this is, I'm going to be doing like green building investment. Like, that's not what I thought I would be doing at all. Um, so it takes a, t- a little while, I think, to really figure out what you want to do if if you have this broader desire to do something in finance, but don't necessarily know what it is. The, the plus side is that the world is your oyster. Um, the downside in some situations can be that it just means that it takes a little while to figure out where you really fit in. I think that is really helpful for students to hear um, and some really good insight. Now, you mentioned the green buildings, and I want to get into the meat of what you are currently doing at Center Square. Uh, in the prep materials, you said you helped stand up an ESG group. Can you talk us through both what ESG is and also the process of standing up an entirely new unit within a bigger business? I think that's a, a very entrepreneurial thing um, that maybe doesn't get as much attention or as many stories. And I'd love to hear about your experience and you know what students can take from what you learned in that process. Yeah, so ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. It is a new but um, extremely, I would say, snowballing type of a phenomenon within the investment world. Um, basically, the premise of this is that, you know, way back in the day, people used to only invest for the purpose of returns. I'm not saying this is like entirely what the entire investment world was, but like your goal was to produce alpha for your clients. Um, when, and when I say alpha, I mean excess returns. I more recently, and this is something that I think has been very prevalent within Europe and is now more so becoming a larger part of the universe in, in the U S is okay, how do we actually think about investing, but in a much more holistic fashion? And the world of kind of impact investing has become more topical. And, and impact investing or investing in general has, has this kind of spectrum, right? And so on one side is philanthropy, where you are effectively just giving money to a cause and expecting effectively no return. And on the other side is just like your traditional investment process where impact was not necessarily part of the consideration. And then somewhere in between is this concept of ESG investing. And what ESG investing truly is, is a value-based proposition. And so when I say it's a value-based proposition, it just means that you are looking at your investment decisions from not only a financial perspective in terms of understanding the financial risks and opportunities associated with your investment, but you are also looking at the environmental and social and governance risks and opportunities associated with your investment. And so it is a much more holistic and therefore a value-based proposition because it makes you a smarter investor. And so that would be kind of different from impact investing, which is a values-based proposition where you are investing for a very specific impact or purpose. And so that, for example, could be something like an endowment that has been created Penn State, for example, right? Like the 
the, the foundations and endowments of this world that have been created with a very specific purpose that would kind of fall more so into that impact investing process. Um, but within this ESG world, so, and I, as a real estate investor, I, you know, I think sometimes some of these things can be a little bit like conceptual and up in the air. So when I say like, I think about um, real estate investing from an environmental lens, for example, Hurricane Ida that just swept through literally drowned like half of the Northeast, right? So how do you think about real estate investments? And so much of the most valuable real estate in the U.S. is in areas like Manhattan, areas like Boston, both areas that are being impacted by climate change, rising sea levels, and the impact of more severe weather events happening like Hurricane Ida. And so how do you think about the risks and opportunities of investing in a real estate asset that is located in one of those markets that is exposed to environmental concerns? Like that environmental due diligence of an investment might not necessarily be part of the traditional investment process, but when you invest from an ESG lens, you do pick up that risk and you're able to then make sure that you're investing your capital in that asset in the context of what environmental risks could come up. So that's kind of just like what ESG investing is. Does that make sense? Yes, that is the best explanation I've heard or read to date. So I appreciate that. Okay. I'm sure <laughs> also appreciate that. Uh, thank you for clarifying the difference between the values and value-based investing. I think that is really helpful. Yeah. So, and, and that kind of brings me to how I stood up this ESG um, capability within Center Square. It it kind of it was again this like perfect storm. We had a client that was looking for a real estate investment manager with this ESG capability. I am the daughter of an environmental engineer, so sustainability has been like part of my lifeblood since day one. Um, something that I am super, super passionate about. And it was just an interesting way of looking at investing in real estate that we weren't doing internally, but something that I that had you know, value from a business standpoint. Again, like I mentioned, ESG investing is a value-based proposition. And when you can demonstrate the fact that you can add value, that's really powerful. And so that was kind of what was needed to to kind of stand up this whole new capability that we had at Center Square was the fact that we had, you know, clients and capital that wanted to come to us looking for this kind of a solution. It was something that I was super passionate about and willing to spend time on building up. And it was also something that just made good business sense because it was going to be profitable in the, in the long run. So all of that kind of put together meant that I had the support of the management team to kind of, you know, run with it. Um, and, and it was just a matter of getting started. It took a lot of time. I, I was doing this in addition to the job I already had, um, which already was like wearing five, six different hats. And so it, it, it was kind of effectively just having the passion for it, having the business viewpoint of, okay, this is actually something that's going to help us in the long run. It's something that's going to create value for for our company, um, and then, and then proving that out. And so that was, once you, once you did that, it was kind of, you know, the world is your oyster in terms of, in terms of building up this capability. And I have to imagine you may have drawn on your student council experience, building up the Thon group, trying to translate to building up this new business unit. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think part of it is the fact that you have to have some sort of a vision. You have to have some sort of kind of, I would say like a an elevator pitch, right? To kind of like bring other people on board and and share in your vision to give you that support that you need. Um, within the student council, that was, okay, we as a college, an honors college, are the only, we're, at the time, we were like the only academic college that didn't have its own thon group. Like EMS had its own thon group and like Smeal had its own thing and like every other academic college had its own thon group. And I was like, where's like the honors college representation? Because we do have so many really, really passionate people. And we had this organization that was already kind of pre-built and in the student council. And 
would be really easy to kind of translate that into here's kind of where we create a brand for the honors college within the fountain community. And that was kind of, you know, the, the sell to the honors college, which is great. And it was something that I was passionate about. So like all of it kind of came together very, you know, beautifully. Um, similarly here, you know, we, the real estate investment space, especially within listed real estate, there was really not a single competitor out there that was trying to build from an ESG perspective, what I was trying to create at center square. And it was something that we could create a brand for ourselves as kind of the leaders within the industry in assessing ESG aspects of every investment. And it was something that would bring in capital. We're running a billion dollars today for an ESG mandate which is awesome. Um, and, you know, so when you have the ability to kind of prove out the business case and have this mission and bring other people into like your vision of what you want to create, um, that's pretty much what it is, right? Like you have this vision, you just have to sell that vision to other people and bring them on board. So yeah, def- I would definitely say that kind of parallels to what, what I experienced with the Honors College when it came to building out that song group. And you'll be pleased to hear that the student council's THON group is still going strong. They have dancers. Uh, so your legacy there is running strong. And I think your legacy that you're building at Center Square hopefully will continue at that same level. In the pre-materials, you shared that you get to go on TV quite a bit as a consultant um, for different programs, presumably like CNBC and, and others. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that is like and how students, if, you know, down the road, they get asked to be interviewed by, say, the Daily Collegian or Walmart State or other media outlets down the road in their career? How do you approach that? Yeah, so I, I, I'll, I'll kind of back up a little bit to tell you what I do at Center Square, which is what got me into that opportunity. So when I came into Center Square, I actually came in because of my strategy experience at Exxon, where I was at Exxon, I was sitting in rooms with the VP running the entire global technology company and his executive team. And we would have these like really interesting strategic conversations about where to take the business in the future. And that was kind of the environment that I was used to. At the time that I joined Center Square, the company was getting ready for a management buyout. And so it was at the time a subsidiary of BNY Mellon. And we wanted to be an independent asset manager. And once we became independent through that process of a management buyout, it meant that kind of we had the ability to do whatever it was that we wanted to do to grow the company. Like all shackles were off and like we were ready to be as entrepreneurial to grow the company in any which way. And that kind of strategy perspective is what I was brought on to do. So I was hired by the chief investment strategist there um, to kind of, you know, help grow the company across various different kinds of aspects. And so I, I came in with this like investment strategy role. And part of that also meant like new product development. It meant um, thought leadership. And how do we at Center Square, where we have investment platforms in listed real estate, so we're investing in the stock market globally. We invest in private equity real estate where we're physically, you know, buying and running individual real estate assets. We have a private debt platform where we're lending on real estate. And so we get to see the real estate market through a couple different lenses, which effectively cover like the entirety of the capital stack of investing in real estate. And so part of this investment strategy role is to also think, okay, how do we invest in real estate in the most smart, intelligent, informed way across our entire capital stack. Like at Center Square, we're able to get a lot of real-time information from the stock markets globally. We're able to get some really great information like from the ground across our debt and equity platforms. Um, and how we put that together to create a holistic and well-informed investment strategy around real estate. And so that 
that and kind of combined with the thought leadership, which is where, you know, I'm writing like white papers for the firm. I'm doing a lot of, you know, publications. So I would say like real estate investment publications that go out on like a quarterly basis. We're writing pieces for that or articles for that pretty regularly. Um, And so that kind of role that I have is what lends itself to doing broadcast as well. Um, That was something that I started more recently. Um, and it's, it's a little bit surreal, mainly just because I used to like, you know, be like sitting in the Sweel building and like looking at the news, you'd be like, Oh my gosh, these people are so cool. And like, they know all this stuff about finance and then I'm doing it. And like, the interesting thing is that like within that conversation, I am the expert on real estate investing. Like that's what I do all day, every day. Um, and so, you know, we were, we work with a really great PR team and they were able to kind of get a couple clips that I'd had, we've like done a couple webinars and things like that at center square internally. And they were like, Hey, you're really good at talking to people. Um, and my previously, it was just a chief investment strategist to my boss that was doing all these broadcast interviews. And they were like, you know, he's, he's getting busy and we want to have like a wider berth of people that can do this. Um, you're good at talking to people. Do you mind if we get you like trained up for this? And I was like, me? Yeah, that would be so cool. Um, so we did like a couple trainings and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting opportunity. Um, something that definitely comes a little bit easier if you are just naturally good at public speaking, or that's kind of like a skill set that you have built up and work on. Um, but part of it was to the fact that like, I had a champion for me within the firm that like, believed in my ability to do so. And it was something that the firm needed something that I was willing to do. Um, and it takes time. It takes practice. I would definitely say the the, the first one that I did, funny enough, I was um, actually on vacation that day um, in central Pennsylvania looking for wedding venues. Um, and I got a call from, from my boss being like, hey, I know you're off today, but you're going to be on TV in two hours. And I was like, what? I'm like in the car in the middle of... Amish country, like on my way to go look at this wedding venue. Um, so I had to like run home to my parents' house. They live outside Harrisburg. And all I had with me were gym clothes. Like I was not in any work attire in any way, shape or form. Um, had to steal my mom's clothes, had to steal her makeup, was like in my dad's office. Um, hadn't showered yet. So really shocked that I like actually looked presentable. But yeah, we like get on and at least right now, like all this stuff is happening virtually. Right. So I'm just on like a zoom call with the correspondent. Um, and it's, it's easier because it's just like, I'm having a conversation with you or anybody else. And and, and that's fine. I'm curious to see how this translates when we're back in person and I'm like in a studio setting or something, but, um, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just effectively at the end of the day, once I got over the fact that this was like, a really cool thing and got over my nerves. It was just like having a conversation with anybody else and understanding that in that situation specifically, I was, I was a subject matter expert in what, what we were talking about. So naturally this was, this is pretty normal for you then doing this podcast. So I appreciate that you were able to bring that to the table today. Um, And good advice for our students if they're able to take advantage of an opportunity like that. But also a nugget in there that you shared was you had an advocate in your firm who helped push you for this. So try and find those faults no matter what industry you're in. Um, So I want to make sure you can take that out of that piece as well. Now, I have one more specific to real estate question for you. and And it could also translate to really any industry. But you were very active in your industry space outside of your specific job and outside of being that thought leader in, in these press pieces. Can you tell us about both the why and the how of these other areas that you're involved in on different boards, whether at Penn State or elsewhere, um, what drew you to those and how you go about actually getting involved beyond just your core job? Yeah, so I, I think part of it is really the fact that I, within Center Square, I am the only person, or not only person, but I like lead our ESG efforts, right? And so when I am trying to learn about 
real estate investing, I am surrounded by brilliant real estate investors at Center Square. When I want to learn about real estate sustainability, I have to go outside the firm because nobody else in the firm has that very specific expertise. Um, and so to kind of learn more about the green building space, I had to go outside the firm to build that skill set. Um, and so in, in that regard, I'm, you know, LEED certified and part of the U.S. Green Building Council's Philadelphia chapter, which is Green Building United. And I sit on their policy and advocacy committee where we are really trying to understand the policies in surrounding kind of the built environment that are either happening currently or in the pipeline. Like right now, we're looking at providing some input for the Philadelphia um, city that's looking at, you know, putting together some new electrification requirements for buildings. Like, what does that mean for the built environment and how that plays into kind of our long-term goal of reducing carbon emissions and getting to kind of this like world of net zero. The reason real estate is very, very crucial in that path is because globally, real estate accounts for about 40% of greenhouse gas emissions which is massive, right? And so as we think about this like long-term target, which exists across Europe, slowly we're starting to see that come through in the Biden administration. Like this goal of achieving net zero is impossible to do without having some sort of an impact on real estate and reducing the carbon load and the greenhouse gas emissions associated with buildings and the built environment. So learning about that, learning how to design retrofit buildings from this kind of sustainability lens, how to understand the implications from a financial perspective associated with achieving those targets, um, and how to incorporate that into how we think about investing in real estate is super, super important something that I need to be an expert on within Center Square and something that I've found networks to help me understand. And so my like green building network includes like architects and, you know, energy engineers and urban planners and all of these people with different kind of very specific niche skill sets that are helping me learn how to understand the sustainability of the built environment and then translate that into my role at Center Square. Um, and, and it's something, again, like I said, I'm super, super passionate about. So I'm also trying to push the industry more broadly in, in, that, in that way. And so I'm um, you know, the co-chair of the Sustainability Committee for NAREAM, which is a real estate investment management organization um, in the U.S. And um, because I think sustainability and looking at finance through an ESG lens is so critical, um, I'm also on the sustainability advisory on um, advisory board um, for SMEAL. And so looking at how do we incorporate this concept of sustainability across every kind of aspect of how we do business, because today ESG is like the standalone thing. Sustainability is something that like a lot of companies will have targets for. And it's not just like within any one industry, like the oil and gas industry is currently completely getting decimated by activist investors like engine number one that are coming in and taking like four board seats and saying like, here's how the oil and gas industry needs to get ready for the future, which is not going to be run on fossil fuels. Or in like the transportation industry, like aviation, things like that. How do you find more sustainable, more efficient ways of actually transporting goods or and people? Um, you're seeing, you know, consulting companies come up with like energy efficiency targets. You're seeing the concept of reducing our impact on the environment. Or even like in the last 18 months, I think there's been this massive focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion because of the Black Lives Matter movement. How do companies think about the impact they're having within their workforce, within their communities? That's kind of that social aspect of ESG that I focus on. Um, so from like that environmental, that social perspective, it's kind of creeping into every business. And it's creeping into every part of every business, right? And so when you think about SMEAL and the majors you can have 
from a finance perspective, how are you investing your capital in the best way to achieve certain goals? Um, from a supply chain perspective, like how are you actually transporting goods in the most efficient way? Um, from a marketing perspective, how are you conveying your purpose and your mission and your messaging around these issues? Super important. So like every aspect of, of how we do business is being impacted by ESG and sustainability. And so the, you know, being part of like the, the, the advisory board for SMEAL, it's like, how do we, how do we integrate that thought process into the curriculum so that students graduate and enter the workforce with this like deep understanding and pre-built knowledge on how their actions and their specific skill sets within a company can help further these types of issues. And it's not something that like a lot of business schools out there really focus on. And so it's, it's a great way for Smeal to create a brand and say like, hey, we are incorporating ESG and sustainability into every aspect of how we are actually grooming these students to come into the real world where these things matter today. And it's only going to grow in importance. So super, super excited about that. But yeah, so I, I like in terms of the things that I do outside of work, again, very much so either helping me learn things that I don't know, or helping kind of further that, that impact and that mission that I want to have more broadly and in the finance and business world of, of pushing us in kind of that purpose driven way. That is incredible. And I really appreciate that you're doing that work here at Penn State and in the Smeal College of Business. I expect nothing less from a uh, scholar, alumna like yourself. You've done all of this in only a few years out of school. And so obviously you don't have the longest career to think back on, but I'd be curious on what you would say is your biggest success so far. And also what's the biggest mistake that you made and what you learned from both of those things? Yes, I I, I would say in terms of biggest success is, is figuring out what it is that makes me tick. And it is this like very cool intersection of purpose and impact and investing. Like that's where I find something that is so fulfilling from a work perspective that it like really, really drives me to do the best that I can. Um, and so being able to kind of bring that into center square and build this ESG capability that we didn't have, I would, that's like far and above my, I think my proudest, biggest accomplishment. Um, from a mistake perspective, it, the actual act is going to sound a little bit silly, but I think the, the learning from it is really important. Um, it was actually my very first job at Exxon. Um, I replied all to an email that went to like my entire department. And it was, it was like a funny thing that was meant for like one person who would have found it hilarious, but it went out to the entire department with no context. And so I was like mortified of what was going to happen. And I was this like new girl that had just joined the team fresh out of college. And like this girl can't even send emails. Um, but the, the learning I would say from that is just, this like, very aggressive attention to detail is so important. Um, and it's, it's like the little things that you do or you don't do that help build trust within your workplace and with the relationships that you have. And if you don't have that trust, it's difficult to really do big things and be able to do them on their, on your own. Um, and, and I say that in the sense that like, if I didn't have the attention to detail in terms of the work that I do at center square, the people that have given me free reign to kind of like run with my ESG world would not have trusted me to do so. And so I, I would just say that like attention to detail, being aware of like the little things that are required to really build trust within an organization are so, so important. Great advice buried in all of that and throughout this entire conversation, Uma. I'd be curious, is there any last pieces of advice that you wanted to share that just organically have not come up yet in our conversation? Constantly learning is really important. Um, I, and I can, I can say this from like the world of 
finance that I sit in where I am on the investment committee for a for a real asset, you know, listed asset kind of world where we're investing in a global stock market that is radically changing all day, every day. I lived through, as we lived through collectively, the the chaos of, you know, the last kind of 18 months of the impact of like the pandemic on the capital markets and what that meant and how do you kind of get through that and blah, 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 blah. But it was, it was this like chaotic time. But again, you're like constantly learning, right? So like if you don't know what's happening with like Evergrande and China and the housing market there, you don't understand how to kind of translate that into what's happening with the stock market here or in Europe. And if you, you know, you have to be aware of like what's going on with Brexit and you have to be aware of like this and that and this and that. So this is like constant learning of like everything that's happening around you. And um, it just, it it's it's so important to kind of be able to look at things from new and different perspectives, which again requires you to be like open to the information that's out there. Um, so I, I would just say kind of being open and being constantly learning and, and being this like sponge of information is, is like a very powerful skill set to have um, just because it makes you just so much more informed. I think it's very, very applicable specifically to what I do because I, it, it impacts my job. Um, but even outside of that, I think, you know, being able to, to talk to a lot of the different types of things that are happening around the world and learning from them and, and being better for it, I think is, is really important in the, in the grand scheme of things. I think that speaks to the building a global perspective tenet of the college's mission statement. So being aware of everything that's going on around you and continually learning. Is there anybody from your scholar days that you'd like to give a quick shout out to maybe a thesis advisor or uh, friends from student council or anything like that? I, I would actually point to the fantastic staff within the Honors College. I think they were super, super helpful in terms of being this fantastic support system to like feed into everything that I wanted to do as a student leader and like be there for that Um in like Lisa's been great from like the career perspective and Donna's been great from like building, you know, the essay, like the Thon group. And, and I just think they've like always, they're always there. Um, so I, I would definitely say, um, you know, I think they've, they've been a big part of me being able to kind of do what I wanted to do during my time at my time at Penn state. For the record, I did not ask you to shout them out, but I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with, with that. Lisa Kruczynski, Donna Meyer, um, fantastic colleagues of mine, great resource for students. If you haven't met them yet, highly recommend getting in touch with them and with some of our other staff here in the college that are here to help. There's a link in the description on how you can book an appointment with some of them. Um, but definitely agree with you there, Uma. They're fantastic. If a student wants to continue this conversation with you and learn more about sustainability, about real estate, about finance, about ESG, how can they connect with you? Um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, yeah, open open to being here as a resource for students that want to, you know, want to get into the wonderful and growing world of ESG investing. Excellent. As is tradition here on Following the Gone, our final question. If you were a flavor of Berkey Creamery ice cream, which would you be? And most importantly, as a scholar, why that flavor? I think alumni swirl. Um, first and foremost, it's my favorite. It's absolutely delicious. <laughs> uh, but, but also, it's just like I am so proud to be an alum of this like fantastic, brilliant university. Um, the alumni network itself, I think is super, super powerful. It's something that a lot of people talk about. It's something that I have personally experienced when I moved down to Houston, I knew like three other people and I made all of these friends in this like massive network of people because they were all Penn State alum that were down in Houston and like wanted to be family with every Penn Stater that they ever saw. Um, but like even from like a career perspective, have been able to leverage that alumni network to reach out to people again, like to learn more about impact investing or green building or whatever it may be. Um, and I have never once had a bad experience. Like if I reach out to a Penn State alum and say, "Hey, I graduated from Penn State. I 
you know, I'm trying to learn about this, or I'm trying to do this or whatever, their doors have always been open. And I think that's such a cool thing to have. um, Just in terms of like a support system that is constantly there and, and wants to see you succeed, even if they don't know you, like you have this commonality of being a Penn Stater and it stays with you for life. And I think that's super cool. That is a great reason to pick a great flavor that we are spirit just goes wherever you go as a Penn Stater. Uma, thank you so much for joining me today. I learned a lot. I hope you listening learned a lot. Really appreciate you taking the time to share all of your great insights and advice. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. Please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Scholar alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at scholaralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are 